By the way, you know by now, if you're just joining us tonight, uh, welcome, glad you're here. We started in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 in January with a letter to the seven churches, letters to the churches, and we just decided after three chapters of that, we'd just keep going, and so we've already made it up now into chapter 7, and we'll keep right on going. Take us all year, but we'll get to the end of the book, I promise, and it'll be the end of the book. It'll be the end of the book at the end of the year. We'll get there. Uh, so let me remind you of our timeline, and there are a number of uh, positions that you can take, of course. Uh, you can go with the um, premillennial position, meaning that all of these events happen before a literal thousand-year reign. We won't talk about that much until Revelation 20, but we'll get there. There's a thousand-year reign. Everything we're talking about here precedes the millennial kingdom or the reign of Jesus on earth. There's the post-millennial which says uh, we're already in and through the millennial kingdom. Uh, hello, we're not. <laughs> that, that's sort of fallen out. World War II, World War I kind of put post-millennialism out of fashion because people looked around and said, how could this happen if Jesus truly is reigning uh, and ruling in a kingdom of his own? So, so that sort of went out of fashion. Uh, the amillennial is the no-millennial, meaning that it's figurative, symbolic, it's not literal and so there is no literal kingdom now within those uh, you've got to decide if you're pre-millennial are you pre-trib mid-trib or post-trib now don't raise your hand so far I know of one of you that's mid-trib the rest of you are right right <laughs> Miss Carolyn so pre-trib means that that there is a rapture of the church of the saints of God before the rapture begins Mid-trib means that at three-and-a-half-year point, when things get really bad, there's the rapture. Post-trib means that Jesus comes back at the end of seven years of tribulation. People who really lean on the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 are post-trib. They think we're all going through all of it. And what Jesus is talking to in the Olivet Discourse is not just to the Jews, but to all of God's people that will all go through it. Which means that there is but one second coming... And that's after seven years of tribulation, three and a half bad, three and a half really bad, and then the day of Christ's return. Uh, you can make an argument for either one of those three, or you might just argue panmillennialism. Do you know what panmillennialism is? It's all going to pan out in the end. Don't worry about it. Most of us would say, I'm not telling God how to do it. I have a preference, but I'm not going to tell God how his timetable has to happen or function. And remember this, in Revelation, there is much yet to be unveiled. There's still much to learn, much to discover, much God has not revealed to us yet. And so what we want to do is we want to learn what we can learn and know what we can know and share what we can share. And when we get just to the edge of where that point of knowing is, we want to be willing to say, I don't know. Just glad God's got all this figured out in advance, right? And the last thing we want to do is be dogmatic or arrogant and prideful of our position or judgmental of other people's position or begin to draw lines and separate from people because they don't agree with our position, which is very common today in all sorts of circles, be it political, social, or even theological. We don't want to do that. We want to agree to disagree on the non-essentials, and I can assure you he's got all this in stuff totally worked out. And he's going to reveal it and pull it out and lay it out before us in his good timing. But until then, let's see if we can't learn a little something about what we should be looking forward to. 
Here we are, Revelation chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea against, or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, that would be from the east, with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until, until, until. So this is a wait a minute. This isn't a full stop. This is a pause. And this is a pause with a divine purpose. A divine pause, point number one for you. A divine pause with a divine purpose. Hold it, stop, stay right there. Now there's lots of imagery here. And lots of symbolism. Some people would take these four angels to be the spirits on the horses, which are the horsemen of the apocalypse, where we covered in chapter 6. They are, in fact, at times compared together. It is possible that what we've done now is recapitulate. You remember in Revelation, it's not chronological. You with me? So you can't lay this out on the timeline. This happened, then this happened, then this happened, this happened. Even when John says, as he does here, after this I saw, that doesn't mean it happened after that. It means after this he saw. So what may be happening here and is likely happening, in fact, it's the best way to approach the book of Revelation and probably all prophecy, is that we have a step back. Let's run that lap again, but let's slow down at this corner and let's really look deeper into this particular leg of the race. So, so you see what I'm saying? So we're going to go around this several times. It's why we'll meet the 144,000 in chapter 7, but it's not the last we're going to see or hear of the 144,000. We'll come back around that lap again. You with me? Uh, the, 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 the plagues, the trumpets, the judgments. You say, boy, that sounds like it did several chapters ago. Yeah, it's because we're looking at it again. But now John is showing us... His revelation is showing us the same, but from a different perspective, or to emphasize a different point, or to unpack a little bit more of the detail. Are you with me? So the fact that we are now hitting pause after chapter 6, where those seals have been opened and God's judgment has been rolled out, and the earth has shaken, and the kings of the earth are looking for holes in the ground. Remember what we said? The most expensive real estate on earth will be a hole in the ground. Because people would rather hide in the ground than call out to the Lord for mercy. They'd rather the rocks fall on their heads and crush them. Problem with that is, is their problem's not over when they're dead. It's just beginning. So we see this happening in chapter 6. And then it's as if God hits pause and rolls back the tape and says, Now, let me show you something that's unfolding here in the context of the unveiling of God's judgment. Hold on, four horsemen, or hold on, four spirits, or hold on, four angels, or hold on, four winds. W-I-N-D-S. And by the way, the Greek word for winds here is winds. W-I-N-D-S. It's not ruach in the Old Testament or pneuma in the New Testament. Some people say, oh, that's the Spirit of God. Wind is the Spirit of God. No, sometimes it's just whoosh, wind. You know, like when the wind was on the lake of, of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus spoke to the wind, wind, be still, and there was a great calm. You know what that was? Wind. So it's not always the Spirit of God. This is just so, but wind is bringing the judgment of God. Four corners means the totality of God's creation. And here, uh, God says, hold on a minute, fellas or ladies. They're angels, they're neither. Hold on. Uh, let's take care of a little business right here before this judgment wave falls, before this wind really begins to blow, before it gets hot down here on planet Earth. So wait until, 
until. Now let me catch that again. Do not harm either earth or sea or trees. I'm in verse 3. Until we've sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number sealed 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, can you read? Read that with me, please. From every tribe of the sons of Israel. I want you to read that with me one more time. From every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. That's a lot of seals. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of Jewish people. And I want to make that point because we want to clear, we understand, be clear that we understand what's happening here. We're in that pause before God's judgment falls in totality while God holds the door open. Remember last week when we saw that the martyr said, Lord, how long? How long? Because there was a sense of God's righteousness that they were championing. Like, God, show them who you are and show them how right we were to, to, to believe in you and to honor you. Show them, Lord. And he said, no, no, not yet. Wait. And what were they waiting for? For the last few to come through. Remember, Peter said that God's not slack concerning his promise, as some consider slackness. But he's patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come, Right? So God is holding the door open, like holding the door, saying, come on, come on, come on. God is holding the door. Here we are. We're in the hold. And what's happening in the hold is 12,000 times 12, 144,000 of the tribe of the sons of Israel are sealed. Now, you remember the importance of seals, right? Seals indicate ownership. Seals indicate authority, the security of contents, Safety, you're sealed, you're secure, you belong to me, you're mine, so don't touch. And we see the seals throughout the book of Revelation, and we see here 144,000 of these are sealed while the door is held open. Now, we know there's another seal we'll come across here in a little while, not tonight, called the mark of the beast. You're familiar with that. Now, I only introduce that because I want you to be able to distinguish that during this time period, there are two seals. There is the mark of the beast, 666, and then there is this seal of God, servants of our God. on their So they're sealed. So there are two seals here. You say, well, what seal do we have? Ephesians chapter 1. Guess what? Church, you have been sealed in the Holy Spirit of God. You have been sealed by the Spirit of God. So we're sealed. Don't worry. God's has secured our future. He is guaranteed with that very seal of His Holy Spirit and inheritance, and we are secure. We are secure. This is not that seal. And by the way, uh, some folks would insert here that the Holy Spirit is back now because the age of the Gentiles, this period of the church has passed, and now it's sort of a different dispensation, if you don't mind that word. And some of you wonder, is he a dispensationalist? I'm a dispensationalist light. Not quite. 
just light. I don't like any titles or labels because you never know what people think that means. So I avoid all of them just to be safe. I'm a biblicist. You know what that is? I believe the Bible. Anyway, so in that thinking, in that dispensation, the Holy Spirit is removed, as it were. Although then you kind of have to wrestle with how people get saved during the tribulation without the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's a great conversation to have another time. But what we see here is God working differently in this era, in this age, in this dispensation, in the sealing of this 144,000 people. So the mark of the beast you don't want. We'll get to that in Revelation 13. The seal of God's servants would be perfect. In Revelation 14, we'll see more about that. And do you know how God has used seals? Let me give you some examples. Noah was sealed up in the ark to protect him from the flood and from God's judgment. Israel was sealed behind those closed doors with the blood of the lamb on the lintel post. Remember, so they were not only sealed, protected, secured as his people from all the plagues, but especially with the blood on the door was a seal of protection so that the death angel would not cross the threshold of the door. Rahab, do you remember Rahab? When the Israel came in to take the land and the first place they stopped, uh, guess who they met? Rahab. She was kind to the spies. She was a God-fearer, I suppose we might say. And so she hung a cloth, you remember, and that cloth was a seal that she would be protected when, when the disaster fell on that town. And it did, and she was. So in this time, when we see these 12,000 from each tribe, 144,000 are sealed, it is a sign of God's ownership and of his responsibility for and of his guarantee to. So these are protected. They're protected. Christians, we're sealed in the Holy Spirit. Thank God. We, we have that same protection based on his ownership of us in the Holy Spirit. Now, the 144,000 is a great number, isn't it? And if, if, if the Jehovah's Witnesses were here to tell us what they believe, you know what that means? They believe that only 144,000 people will make it into heaven. Only. That's it. And everyone else you get a consolation prize. You get to live on a restored earth in an Edenic sort of a paradise. But it's not heaven, and you're not with God, and you don't get to rule with God. That's the Jehovah, that's, that, that number has been made famous wrongly by the Jehovah's Witnesses. Other uh, religions and cults have different versions of what the 144,000 mean, but I'd like to take it uh, from a biblical perspective, if you'll allow me to do that. Some folks would say, well... Uh, it's actually not a solid, hard number. You know, in Revelation especially, numbers mean something. Numbers mean something. So it could be that this is symbolic of completion. Completion. Twelve is the number of completion. Times twelve is perfect completion. With a thousand just amplifies it. So there's a sense in which this is just a number of completion. Let me share with you from commentary critical and explanatory on the whole Bible because I could never say this without just reading it okay 12 is the number of the tribes and appropriate to the church that part I would disagree with three by four three the divine number multiplied by four the number for worldwide extension 12 by 12 implies fixity and completeness which is taken a thousand fold and 144,000 a thousand implies the world perfectly pervaded by the divine for it is ten the number, the, the whole world number raised to the power of three, the number of God. And that just gives me a headache. I don't know. I, I don't know. I, don't, I got a whole book on numerology in the Bible. 
I, I read it and I go, where'd you get that? I mean, who says? And sometimes, surely, three, we know what three is. That's the Trinity. Yeah. We know what seven is. That's the number of God. Yeah. So six is man. So there's no doubt numbers mean something. Now, if you can take it that far, I don't know. I think you could take any good thing a little too far and it's not such a good thing. But some would say it's not a number. It's symbolic of wholeness or completion or perfection, meaning that all of the people, some would say all of the people who will ever be saved are reflected in and represented by this 144,000 people. The real problem with that, folks, is I made you read it three or four times just to be sure you heard. How symbolic was this? Every tribe of the sons of Israel. That's not symbolic. That's pretty literal. That's pretty specific. So I take this to be not a, all the saved throughout all the world. At the very least, if it's symbolic, it's symbolic of all of the Israelites or all of the Jews who will be saved. If, if you're going to say symbolic, you've at least got to say it's symbolic of Israel. Because that's what it says. Right? You say, well, I don't know if that's what it means. Listen, usually in the Bible, it means what it says. It's just a sort of simple way to read the Bible, I know. But you've got to do a lot of slicing and dicing to take this out of the context of Israel. So at least symbolically, it's of Israel and of the Jewish people who will be saved during this time of tribulation, otherwise known as a remnant. Because God's always got a remnant, right, Elijah? Woe is me. I'm the only one. God, I'm it. I'm all you got. I'm so depressed. And God said, you kidding me? I got 7,000 more that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. What do you think? I've always got a remnant on reserve. Don't worry. So there's a sense in which the 144,000 could be that remnant. But if it's a number, and it sure looks like a number to me, but if it's a number, then we take one more step to discover putting Revelation 14, 16, 19, other places together, going back to Ezekiel, going back to Isaiah, going into Matthew. Here's what we come away with. that These are Jewish evangelists who are saved during the tribulation. You say, now how do you know they're saved during the tribulation? Because it's going to say so in a minute. Trust me on that one. They're saved in the tribulation because the tribulation is a great evangelistic harvest event. I mean, Billy Graham would love to preach during the tribulation. I'm telling you, so a mold, can't count them. Number of people are going to be saved, and 144,000 of them are Jewish. Now, I will admit, if we read about the 144,000 in upcoming scriptures and upcoming chapters, we'll have to figure out how uh, they're virgins and how you know all that works as they serve God. Who, who are, how do you find 144,000? Some people want to just make that all symbolic too. We'll come to that. I think it's safe to leave it at this for right now that we have Jewish evangelists who are saved, set apart to serve the Lord, to preach the gospel that they have just for themselves discovered and embraced to the nations, to the Gentiles, who we're going to meet in verse 9. I think that is a legitimate way to look at this text. Now, I'm not going to say 100%, but I'm going to say I'm comfortable saying this. I believe these are Jewish people because the Bible says they're sons of Israel. And there's 144,000 of them, and the Bible tells us they come out of the tribulation. So that's the most logical conclusion that these are. Uh, literally, you say, well, how can there be that many? There are 9 million Jews living in Israel today. 144,000 is but a remnant. 
Just, just a remnant. I, I may be off on the number. Some of y'all were in Israel with me. You might correct me. Nine million live there. They're not all Jewish. I think about seven million. But that's still an awful lot of people to pick 144,000 from. Amen? So let's leave it there for just a moment. And we'll leave that as unfinished business and we'll come back to it. But let me give you one thing that I am 100% sure on. Regardless of where you land on the identity of the 144,000, how symbolic, how literally, and who exactly is it, let me tell you one thing I am 100% convinced on. God is not through with Israel as a people. 100%. 100%. And you get into this end times and you start reading some stuff and you'll come across some things called replacement theology that essentially says the church is the new Israel. God is finished with Israel. Kaput's done. They blew it. It could buy. The glory has departed. And God has thrown them to the wind, scattered them to the ends of the earth. We are now the new Israel. Let me just tell you something. You're reaching, really reaching, not to see God still keep his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And you say, well, they don't deserve it. Hello, they never did any more than we do. The covenant was never about Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob's faithfulness. It was about God's faithfulness to himself. Keep that in mind. It's an everlasting, unconditional covenant. It never depended on Abraham in order to be fulfilled. God has not finished his own promise, his own words, his own covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's never finished that. So there's unfinished business. There's work to be done. So God is not done with Israel, and we are not the new Israel. So let me just emphasize one thing I am sure of. God is not finished. But let me give you this. Not all Israel is Israel. So we're not talking about a genetic strain or a DNA connection. We are not. It's more than that. There is a sense in which, if not by adoption or engrafting, we're just as Jewish as any Jewish Jew could be by faith. And here's why that's not a problem. Because that's the only way they're what they are. By faith. No one's justified by works of the law. All of us come in the same way. We come by faith. Some people really struggle with the perspective that the the Jewish people can be saved because they're Jewish. Wait, who believes that? Paul didn't believe that. Can I take you on a little journey? Will you go with me to Romans chapter 9? I'm going to read a lot to you, but I think in three chapters I can give you a pretty good, clear understanding of God's plan for Israel in the end times. Romans 9. You really need to read 8, 9, 10, and 11, but let me highlight for you. Paul writing, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. It's not a genetic, it's not a DNA thing. It's not your cousin. It's your heart. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. We're talking about election. This means that... It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Verse 27. As Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Not all Israel is Israel. Not everybody born in is in. You with me? For the Lord, verse 28, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon each fully and without delay. Listen to Romans 10, 12. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing all riches on all who call upon him. In the context of the gospel of Jesus, 
believing in our heart, confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So let me tell you who gets saved. People who put their faith and trust in Jesus. Doesn't matter their genetics. Doesn't matter their code or their DNA. Doesn't matter who your great-grandpappy was. You make a hard decision to trust in the Lord. You believe, you confess with your mouth, and you're saved. There's no distinction. Romans 11, 5. So too at the present time there is a remnant. Paul talking about his people now. By the way, Paul was Jewish. Did you know? By the way, did you know Jesus was a Jew? Did you all know that? It's amazing how many Christians don't know Jesus was a Jew. Not how many Jews don't know Jesus was a Jew. Romans 11, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. I'm reading Romans. This is the Bible, Romans 11, 5. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Listen to verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, some would say, well, there's your problem right there. You just said all Israel will be saved. Well, all doesn't always mean all. Especially if in the same course of writing, Paul used the word some twice. All means all that will. It doesn't mean everyone regardless. It means all that do or all that will. All means whoever, but not all. All Israel will be saved. And I'll show you that in a minute. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. He's talking about Israel. All? Listen to Romans eleven thirteen. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So the notion that we believe God's going to save all the Jews just because genetically they are Jewish, Paul didn't believe that. I don't believe that. That's not anywhere within the conversation. But I will tell you this. All the Jews who will be saved will be saved by faith. By grace through faith. Even as Abraham was called right before the law. How? Because Abraham was justified by faith. Apart from the law. You know why he was justified by faith apart from the law? Because he was way, way, way back there, way before Moses ever wrote down those commandments. So you see, it's always been by faith. Uh, that's just clear in Scripture. It's always been by faith. So nothing changes in this, if you'll call it dispensation, or this age, or this era, or this time. They still got to come to Jesus to be saved. There's no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved except the name now, you did it again. I, whenever you say Jesus, you have to say Jesus. Don't you? Oh, Jesus. Ready? I, in no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved except the name of Jesus. Thank you very much. I appreciate your participation. By the way, I, I mentioned going to Israel a moment ago. I, I have to tell you, uh, I'm not by nature a doubter. So I won't tell you that I've been a doubter. But I've ever had any doubts about Scripture, prophecy, end times, and Israel. Let me tell you all you got to do. This is not a commercial. I'm not inviting you. I'm just telling you. If you want to see 
clarity and settle those issues. Just get in your car and go to the airport and go to Israel and open your eyes. Just go, just open your eyes. Am I right, Anthony? He's been there. You just go and look around at a people who were not a people a hundred and so years ago. At a nation that was not a nation just a little while ago. And when it wasn't, it was malaria-infested swamps. Unproductive. You know why it was unproductive? It was a wasteland. You ought to read what Mark Twain said about Israel before it was Israel. Complete barrenness. Wasteland. Nobody wanted it. Nobody cared. You know, Israel bought an awful lot of land for a little bit of money because nobody wanted it. But you go look around there now, and I'm just telling you, it's miraculous what you see happening there. It's miraculous. Now, you won't hear the heavenly angels sing. You won't hear the choirs. They don't all walk around in white robes going holy all the time. It's a secular nation. I grant that. In fact, you don't have to believe in God. You can be an abject atheist and be a part of the synagogue. No problem. Faith is optional. Belief in God, totally optional. We have to be careful what gods we hire because... We want a Christian God, but what we don't want is an atheist God. And there are an awful lot of atheists who work as guides in the Holy Land. Huh? Normal. They don't have to believe in God. They just have to read the stories and tell them with passion and conviction. And then sit around the cafe while all the Christians are having lunch and laugh about these hillbillies from the U.S. And believe all these myths, fairy tales, and fables. I'm telling you. So I'm not making Israel out to be some super spiritual holy nation. No. What I'm telling you is there is a physical national ingathering that is happening. You stand, you look on the the valley of Jezreel where Armageddon plays out and and you see what's happening down below you. And you read from Ezekiel and you read from Isaiah and the other prophets. There is no other way you can explain what's happening over there right now than God is not finished with Israel. Have I made my point yet? God is working. I'm telling you, it's nothing short of miraculous. And once this physical ingathering has happened, then the bones are in the valley. And all we need then is the breath, and I do mean breath. Ruach is the Hebrew word for the spirit or the breath of God. As Ezekiel prophesied, what did he say in Ezekiel 7? Right foot connected to the... That's all I know. Toe bone connected to the foot bone and the foot bone connected to the... Ankle bone and the ankle bone connected to the leg. You know that song. Don't act like you don't know that song. I'm telling you, God is not finished with Israel. Well, let's go beyond Israel. If I've made my point, I want you to believe God is working. And that's straight up biblical. I don't know of any systematic, theological, systemic system of thought that can make a case that God has finished his work in Israel. There's more to do. But I want you to notice the nations before the throne of God. We can move through this more quickly. The nations. Look at verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that none could number. From where? Hold on. Where are they from? They're not from Israel. They're from every nation, which is the largest designation for a people group. In reality, originally all one nation. But, you know, we had that little Tower of Babel thing, and we sort of started segmenting and segregating and moving out. And God said, hey, you guys got to get some distance here because you, you get, you're going down the wrong road here. And, and so uh, we have not only nation from every nation, from every tribe, which is a subset of a nation, and peoples and languages. Standing where? 
before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Let me tell you, if you just came through what these people came through, you'd say amen too. You've been spared what these folks have been delivered from, you'd say amen too. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might, and I could just keep going. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen, they said. So here we find the nations before the throne of God. To remind us, of course, that God has and has always had a heart for the nations, for all kinds of people, no exceptions. No exceptions. That's not just a New Testament thing or a contemporary church thing. That's not the result of the modern missionary movement, thank God for it. No, no, go to Genesis chapter 1 and listen carefully. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. We are image bearers. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds and the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, image bearers. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. What are we to multiply? The image of God. We are image bearers. When we multiply, we multiply the image of God and therefore the glory of God. Where? Throughout all the earth. Every corner. Every place. Multiply, he says. Multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion, meaning the image of God in dominion or with dominion over all of creation. So from the beginning, we have this massive, grand, mega, meta-narrative of God's glory throughout the earth. So from the very beginning, we see God's heart for the nations. And of course, you could do the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Do you remember what he said there? In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. If there's any doubt, Genesis 18, verse 18, you shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, the angel said of Abraham. Genesis 22, 18, and in your offspring, this is after the Isaac situation, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. What was God's plan in creation? That his glory be throughout all the earth. What was his plan in calling a man to himself and making a nation of the man unto himself? Blessed to be a blessing, folks. A blessed nation to be a blessing to every nation. It's been God's heart from the beginning, for sure. Jesus, in fact, even accentuated, you could read it from Mark chapter 11, verse 7. Do you remember when he threw out the money changers from the temple? Remember? You know what he said? He said, let me read it to you. He said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. For all nations. Jesus, he's quoting Isaiah, by the way who was quoting Solomon when he dedicated the temple and asked God at the dedication prayer of the temple that Solomon built for people of Israel for the Shekinah glory of God to dwell. You know what Solomon said? God, when a foreigner hears of this place, comes and prays, listen to him. That's what Solomon said. He said this, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel. That's what Solomon said. So, my point is, this is no surprise. There is no surprise that there are people around the throne from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. Before That's always God's heart. 
It's always been in God's purpose and plan. That there are the nations there before the throne of God that all peoples might give him honor and glory and bring him praise. They're there. Jesus, of course, said in the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of the people you like, the people who look like you, people who think like you, who believe what you believe, who share your values. No, all nations. Go and make disciples. Preach the gospel to all nations, clearly in the Great Commission. God has had the nations on his heart. And whatever you say, don't say we're the new Israel. We're the church, and we ought to learn from the mistakes of Israel before all the problems. They missed, they were blessed, and, and, and then suddenly they started to notice that they were blessed, and, and then they started to forget that they were blessed to be a blessing. Churches can do that too. Churches can, can be blessed and then forget that blessing is supposed... People can do that. People, God blesses people all the time. And you know what we do? We just grab a hold of it and hold it as tight as we can because it's my blessing. When in fact, God blesses us to be a blessing. And here are the nations before the throne of God. But now let's put a bow on it in verse 13 and wrap up. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these? So, right, we're going to answer the question now. Who are these? Clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And John said the right answer. <laughs> I said to him, sir, you know. Meaning, I'm not risking this one. No. Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. So this is not the 144,000. You understand that? Those were... 12,000 from each tribe of the tribes of Israel. By the way, drive yourself crazy trying to figure out how that list got to be that list, but about 37 times in the Bible, that list is presented almost never the same way each time. Dan's in, Dan's out, Naphtali, Manasseh, Ephraim, Joseph's in. Joseph was placed by two sons, and Levi's in, but he's not supposed to be because he doesn't get an inheritance because that's the priestly clan, right? Don't kill yourself. Here's the answer to that. I don't know. Say that with me. That's all. I don't know. I don't know why the list is the list the way it is there. I don't know. Maybe God has. I'm sure God has. God, let me just say that. God has a reason. He hadn't told us yet. These, though, they're of the nations. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. You know, that's a description of their reality in the midst of tribulation. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So here we have this group of nations gathered around the throne who have come up out of the great tribulation. Idea being, 144,000 Jewish evangelists cover the earth with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when a multitude, a, think about this, if, if, if 11 plus 1, 12 Jewish men can do what they've done in, in their time, here we are, right? 12. Look what God did with 12. Imagine what God will do with 144,000 Jewish evangelists on fire and with the clock ticking. So a multitude, they come out. And that's the good news. They've got white robes, which means they've been sanctified, set apart, purified. And they've got a palm branch, which is waving victory. Like the palm branch. Uh, Hosanna, Hosanna, blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord. When do we say that? Palm Sunday. 
You know why they did that when Jesus came into Jerusalem that day on Palm Sunday? You know why? Because they were seeing victory. It was, in, it was right there. Jesus is going to come. We're going to win. It's going to happen. It's like waving the flag on the 4th of July. Palm branch, a symbol of the Maccabees and the revolt and victory. And the yearning for, for restoration. So they've won. They've got the palm branch. And there they are. And the good news is, is the, the tribulation for all the bad really becomes a worldwide awakening in the worst of times. Isn't God good? I mean, think about that. Would you, would you take people right up to this point and then take another seven-year step and pour out every pot of judgment you got on these poor people for one purpose? Anybody want to come go with us? Because if the rapture didn't get your attention, then let's start with uh, seals and let's go to some trumpets and then let's go to some bowls and let's just keep pouring it on. Because remember, God's judgment has two purposes. Yes, it punishes. But God's judgment, even His judgment, is redemptive. So the purposes of God of judgment, even in tribulation, is purification. It's why I really think there's a pretty good argument for post-trib. I'm not there, but I think there is because of the purifying of the people of God during the tribulation. There's no question that it's trial by fire. Thankfully, they're sealed, and so they're secure. And they come through, and they come out, and they're there around the throne. A multitude of them, redeemed and rescued literally from the edge. From the edge of destruction for eternity. And there they are, having suffered pressure, which became persecution with no mark of the beast. We'll get to this. They hunger, they thirst, they long for shelter. You know how we know that? Because that's what's given to them in this scene. No more will you suffer these things. No more will you experience these things. You'll be nourished. You'll be cared for. You'll be comforted. You'll be protected. You'll be sheltered. You'll be shepherded. And so they bless the Lord and they serve the Lord. And this is the point I want to make. I want you to hear this carefully. Just as saved as anyone else. Just as blessed as anybody. There's no second class citizen here. You know, tribulation saints, we call them, we tend to think, oh boy, those are people that got in by the skin of their teeth. <laughs> Give them the room out back, right? No, no. Look what, they have the throne of God. They're before the very throne of God. They're worshiping up close and personal. There they are. These who came in in the bottom of the ninth, two outs and two strikes. Whew, Jesus hits a home run and there they are. And I just want to make that point because there's something in us, if we aren't careful, that says, well, they don't have the same reward we do, do they? You know, they don't, they don't get the same access we have. We've been faithful all these years. We've loved Jesus all these years. We skipped the whole tribulation thing altogether because we got caught up. We were good enough to get raptured. These people, guess what? Jesus meant that little bit, what he said about the least, the lost, and the last. And the last just might be first. And here's the point, folks. This is just grace. And I always want to remind myself, I always want us to remember that grace is grace is grace. And it doesn't matter if it's grace, it's grace. And here they are. Look at the blessing of these tribulation saints. Well, let me wrap it up with three points quickly. Because we haven't seen the church in a while. And we certainly haven't seen the church in Revelation chapter 7. We see the the divine pause for divine purpose as God deals with the people of God, his people, the Jews. Yes, we're his people, but we're not Israel genetically. They're not Israel except by faith. 
We see the nations before the throne of God, an expression of the grace of God. We see the triumph of tribulation saints. It's all here. But what about the church? Well, number one, I think we learn from Revelation chapter 7 as the church that we ought to bless Israel. We ought to bless Israel. We should. I don't, I guess I do spiritually understand the animosity and the hatred toward Israel. I do. I mean, think about this. When I stand with my back against the Mediterranean Sea and, and show folks from, from north to south and everywhere in between, is not a nice neighborhood. And to a person, they would love to deny Israel its right to exist. Imagine living in that neighborhood. Won't go borrow a, an egg or a gallon of milk? Uh-uh. They deny your right to exist, right? But what's the Bible say? Bless Israel. See that, what did he say to Abraham? Whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. So bless Israel. Bless Israel. And by the way, watch them too. Keep an eye on them. They've been called the super sign of end times. Pay attention to what's happening in that part of the world. Number two, reach the nations. Bless Israel, reach the nations. Next door and all around the world. Because you see from Genesis chapter 1 to right here in Revelation, God has a heart for the nations, for all people. For all people. You know what? There's a lot of good things we can do and we do do as the church. I mean, can you... Would it be fun, would it ever be fun to try to figure out how many donuts Baptists have eaten since donuts were invented? Donuts are great. I love donuts. And Sunday morning is the perfect time for a donut, a cup of coffee, and a small group Bible study. I'm all for it. It's good. Fellowship's good. Uh, worship is great. I'm a worshiper. I love to worship God. I'm serving the body. All oh, that's good. But you know, there's one thing that touches God's heart that we can only do now while we're here, and that is reach the nations for Jesus. That is true. That song, there's no time will come when we will have missed the opportunity to reach and disciple the nations, and we ought to start next door. Because God has a heart for the nations. There they are. And finally, rejoice with the Father. Rejoice. Rejoice with the Father. Here's my suspicion. If we work with Him, we will rejoice with Him. If we watch others work with Him, we will watch others rejoice with Him. I mean, you think about this for a moment. If we, if we haven't been in on God's plan of the ages, we haven't been a part of His redemptive activity... If we haven't been a blessing to Israel, if we haven't been a part of his plan to reach the nations, if we haven't shared the gospel, if we haven't given generously and faithfully so others can go to the ends of it, if we haven't done that, we get to heaven and they're having a big party celebrating the work of God and the fruit of the fields of the harvest of God, and we weren't a part of that, what do we do? Right? So that's why I say if we work with God, I really believe, We'll have a heart to rejoice with God. Because I'm telling you this. If all the angels of heaven rejoice over just one person, imagine the celebration in heaven over a multitude that no one can number. You talk about a party in heaven. Hello? I don't want to be a spectator, folks. Baptists are good at spectating at parties. Y'all know that? Hmm? We're good. We stand back. We're the sober ones, right? So, so we stand back and watch all these crazy people do crazy things, right? We have learned to watch other people, and sometimes that's exactly the right thing to do. Sometimes, go home. But besides that, I don't want to watch this. I want to be right in the middle of it. 
Christmas. I really believe the Father's heart rejoices around His throne when people from every nation, including His people and these people, are there. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray that the truth of God's Word is both encouraging and uplifting to you. If you'd like more information about our church, service times, or locations, or if you have a question about what you heard today and you want to connect with someone, I want to encourage you to visit us on our website at championforest.org. Have a great day and God bless.